0: How many of you have ever known or been around somebody uh, that, and this has probably happened, you know, with younger couples, but you've been around them, they were just so in love that it just kind of made you sick. You you know what I'm talking about? Everybody here is like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm talking about the couple that once they're together, then from then on, every part of their life is kind of ruled by the schedule of the other person, you know, so all they do is, is completely controlled by the next time they get to see that other person and the next time they get to talk together i i heard a story about one guy who uh met his future wife at that time and and he just fell head over heels and to the point where he just took everything to next level where he he bought an extra cell phone for his for his girlfriend for his fiance so that she would have direct access to him any time that she wanted now his friends realized that when they would call him that he they knew he was screening their calls and not answering their calls so they got a hold of that number and tried to call him using that number that number that he got for his girlfriend and, uh, and 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 to try to circumvent being screened but uh, but when they did that they only found that they realized that he would put messages on there for the voicemail specific specifically for the girl you know so it was like baby, I can't come to the phone right now, but I'm thinking about you, you know, you know your eyes are like, you know, and they're like gross, you know, and just can't hang up fast enough. But, you know, people in love like that, they just, they just talk for hours on the phone. And if they're separated for more than 24 hours, they're outside looking up and they're saying, yeah, I see it, baby. I, I see it. And you know what they're doing is they're talking about they're both looking at the moon at the same time and you just get so full of it you, you say, yeah, come on, give it a rest, you know, And if you don't catch that, I'm not going to unpack what that means to you. But, but, uh, but in people who are in love like this, here's what I'm saying this for. It is evident in every part of his or her persona that they are loved because no matter what subject you talk about, no matter what you're doing, the other person becomes part of that equation. You know what I'm talking about, where every conversation you could say, you could say, man, this spaghetti tastes really good today. And you're like, you know, I had spaghetti with such and such one time. And every, doesn't matter what you're talking about, you say, boy, I mowed my lawn today. You know, my, my, uh, uh, whatever her name is, or is she, she has a lawn, you know, it's like it's going to be brought in and no matter what you're talking about. And they are literally always talking about each other and always want to get to each other. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, you've been married. Oh, it's just it's both beautiful and gross at the same time. You know what I'm talking about. So here's what I want to say. When you when you take time and hang out with people, you can always tell what they love because they're always talking about it. And if you don't believe it. Just pay attention to whoever you, you eat lunch with today. And I guarantee you that if you take time to listen during your dinner in, in an hour or two, you will know who or what that person loves. And if it's not another person, it's going to be a thing. Or maybe if it's a guy, it might be a sports team, you know. But, but we have been created to love and to latch on to something. And, and, and I say that to say this. Here's what I know about the author of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews has a thing for Jesus. Because I know this because we're seven chapters in and he has talked about nothing but the person of Jesus. And now, in what we're gonna be looking at today, we're, we're sort of at a crossroads in the book. We, we're, 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 we got two verses left in chapter seven we're gonna look at and a little bit, kind of a review. But then we're gonna jump into chapter eight. Uh, and Lord willing, we're gonna finish all that today. But, but all he's talked about so far is the person of Jesus. He has not talked about the work of Jesus. He has not talked about what Jesus has done for us. He simply talked about who Jesus is. And today, we're going to turn the corner a little bit because for the next three or four chapters, he's going to stop talking about the person of Jesus and he's going to start talking about what Christ has done for us. And the reason this is really important is because you will never understand the person of Jesus outside of the cross. And you will never understand the cross outside the person of Jesus. You have to grasp both sides of Of this coin in order for you to get what the gospel is really all about what the message is and so we spent the last 11 weeks on the person of Jesus and now we're gonna turn the corner to the work of of Jesus in the cross of Christ so let's go chapter 7 we're we're gonna start where we ended last week in verse 26 here's what it says for it was indeed fitting and, and we said last week that this was the understatement of the universe for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and ex- exalted exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. And that phrase, once for all, is huge. And we'll get into that when we get to chapter 10. He said, "But uh, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So now this is, as I said, this is a bit of a reiteration of what we said last week. The old way, the, the old covenant was this series of laws into which the priest would try to guide you. So you would come to a priest and you would say, I, I have a lust problem. I have an anger problem. I have this bitterness problem. I have this problem or that problem with this sin or that sin. And, and I have I've something short circuiting in me. Something is wrong in me. And the priest would basically Take your life and lay it down against the law and say, well, here's where you behaved right and here's what you're doing wrong. So uh, so let's now just kill that. Let's kill this animal to make atonement for your sin. And then you go and start to live by what is right. But the problem, as we said last week, was what? The problem was that the law makes nothing what? Anybody remember? The law makes nothing perfect. Which means that you and I can obey all the laws of the Bible. We, we, we can, we and not only the Bible, but also our spoken and unspoken rules and evangelicalism. We can do all those things and still not be whole. And there are a lot of people who, who could raise their hands in this place. A lot of people that you know would say, who could say, I've grown up in church and I've learned to play the game. It did not satisfy. And so we talked about the fact that many of us started doing all those these things that we thought we were supposed to do to make us whole. You know, we got saved and we started watching our mouths and we started not watching those certain movies and we started doing this, started doing that, and became Republican, yada yada yada, whatever the list might be. In in our desire to find God, we started conforming to a moral code, and eventually we woke up and we knew the right things to do, but we couldn't find Jesus anymore. That's, that's the story for many, many people. And, and th- this is just a reiter- reiteration that the way of Jesus is better in that Jesus is not interested in conforming us to a pattern of religion, but transforming our hearts so that the motives change, so that we want different things, right? So Jesus would teach it this way. He'd say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you have a lustful heart, you're no better off. And last week we used the illustration of an alcoholic to clarify for us what we're talking about because I think it's really easy for us to understand in this context. But but is an alcoholic free who makes it through the day without drinking, but every fiber of his mind, body, and soul is screaming out for a drink all day long? Well, well, the answer is no. The answer is no. But, But when the heart is transformed and he begins to want different things, then all those other things begin to fall into line. And so we said last week that the good news of our high priest is that, is we don't have to white knuckle ourselves into behaving right. You don't, you, you don't have a priest that commands you to get control of your lies or your drinking or your issues or your sins, but you have a high priest that wants to heal you of them. You have a high priest who's not interested in you gaining control over your lust, but healing you of your la- lust. We, we, we don't have to try to make ourselves good. We have to be honest before, uh, before a God who will heal us and who will grow us in maturity. And that's what we said last week. So now let's jump into chapter 8. In, in eight, chapter 8, verse 1, there's something that is a, a very rare and beautiful thing that happens. Because, because usually when it comes to when you read the scripture, you're sort of on your own to figure out what the main point is. And if you've ever thought about it, even scripture testifies that it can be difficult. Have you ever thought about it? Like there's a place where Peter writes and he says, he says something along the lines. He says, I know you guys have been trying to read Paul's stuff. I don't know. That's kind of what he said. I don't get it either. He said, it's hard to understand that dude is smarter than I am. Hey, I fish. That's what I do. You know, that's kind of what he said. And so you have scripture testifying about scripture that it's not always easy, but, but you have something very unusual happening here. This is what it says in verse one. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. So here's the main point. That's what's unusual. Paul, uh, I think it's Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, he's just, he's saying something very unusual, something very rare. He's saying to us, here's my point. Usually you got to dig through it to figure out what Paul is saying, but here's what he says. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in in where? In heaven. Now, keep that in mind, because I'm going to talk about that in a minute. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that that the Lord set up, not man. For every high, and by the way, when he talks about tent here, he's, he's referring back to the picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, I want you to to read some of this out to me when we get to it. So, so the Lord says, they serve a what? They serve a copy and a what? A shadow of the heavenly things. That is so powerful there he's saying all of the law all of that the priests were doing it was a copy of what was really going on in the universe it was a shadow of the reality of what god was doing so so this is where he's going to get get into talking about the copy he said for when moses was about to erect the tent now again he's talking about the tabernacle he was instructed by god saying see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain so here's what's happening here the writer of hebrews Is attacking the idea that the work of Jesus took place and that now Jesus is somewhere else four billion miles away on the other side of Pluto Pluto in this place called heaven watching you on TV TV like a reality TV show and hoping for the best he's saying that's not the way it is Jesus said it like this he said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? In, in the midst of you or in you. The, the, you know, the idea that's portrayed in all the movies in our culture is that heaven is a, a far off place behind Alpha Centauri somewhere. You know, there's this far flung place out in the middle of nowhere in the universe where God hangs out. But that is not the picture of heaven taught by Jesus in the scriptures in fact the idea of heaven is is very very difficult for us to grasp honestly because although it is a place we're told in scripture it is a place but we also know from scripture that it transcends all that we understand about time and space so how do you put your know wrap your brain around that so what he's going to help us understand he's going to try to help us understand this by saying hey moses gave a copy of what this looks like of how this plays out in life and he references the tabernacle now here here's how the tabernacle was built you you would walk through the through the gate into the outer court there was like this this fence made with all these animal skins of the tabernacle. And it went all the way around the, the tent of the tabernacle. And you would walk in through that gate into what was called the outer co- court. And, and in the outer court, all of Israel was allowed there. You, you, while you were in the outer court, you could, you could worship. You could debate. You could talk about scriptures. But everyone was welcome in the outer court. Then inside that outer court, inside that, 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 that little fence that was going around it, inside there... Was the, was the outer court was a tent that was divided into two parts. One part, and by the way, the temple that was built later that was permanent was, a, was built upon the same, the same pattern. But one part, the first part, you walk into the front door of that tent, that was called the holy place. And in the holy place, there were certain pieces of furniture that were in there, and there were there were the scrolls of the scripture that would then they would be kept there, and that's they would be read to the people, and 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 the only people allowed into that into that room of knowledge, if you will, were the priests. And the Levites. So all of Israel could come into the outer court, but only the priests and the Levites could come into the holy place in that place of knowledge where the scripture was. And then past the holy place was the holy of holies that was separated from the holy place by a curtain or a veil that was hanging there across the middle of the temple. And, and, and the only one allowed into the holy place was the high priest Who once a year, under the coverage of blood, would go in and make atonement for for his own sin and for the sins of Israel. And the only thing that was in the Ark of the, in in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and there were things inside there. We don't need to, we're not going to talk about that today. But then, and there was that, and then just the Shekinah glory of God. That's all there was. Now that is a picture of the universe in which we live. Let me try to explain it to you like this. Um, You and I were created and designed by God to live in three worlds, three worlds. Now, two of them are easy for us, and the third one is very difficult. So here are the three worlds. Number one, you were designed to live in a world of matter. I did not say a world that matters. I said a world of matter, a world that's created by things that we can touch and feel. Uh, th- this is a world that our senses engage. Like, you know, I, I got up this morning uh, to the sound of my alarm, and and I hit the snooze button on my alarm, and and then I hit the snooze button on my alarm again. Anybody relate with that? You know what I'm talking about? And and I got up and I and I, and I took a a hot shower to wake myself up, and then I I I, I grabbed my stuff and. Headed out the door on the way to church, and on and I and I and I ran over to Sonic to get a junior breakfast burrito uh, to tide me over before lunch, and I and uh, saw Renee there. It was a good to see her. We make make sure great minds think alike, you know. And, and then I came into church, and I was here, and 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 I uh, 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 you know walk in, and the air conditioning was going. I got to feel the cool cool air. Thank the Lord for that. And all the while this morning, I am seeing and I am feeling and I am sensing, I'm smelling. Uh, well, I was, hopefully I wasn't smelling, but I was smelling other things and, uh, and, and I lived in this world of matter. I, I'm living right now in a world of matter. I can feel my shirt on my skin, to me, it feels a little warm in here, but it always feels a little warm to me in here. I can, I can feel the ring on my left hand over here. I live in this world of matter. I can see you. I, I can walk out and touch you, but I'm not going to do that because it, you might freak out because that'd be a little weird if I just walked out and said, hey, I'm going to touch you. That'd be a little strange. So, uh, but, but, but I live in this world of matter. You live in a world of matter where you can see, you can hear, you can touch, you can taste, and you can smell. So the first part, the outer court is this, world of matter. Second thing is you were designed by God to live in a world of the mind. This is a world of thoughts and ideas and emotions and the arts and all these kind of things. Like right now, you are thinking, you know, and some of the ladies are like, you don't know my husband. <laughs> no, no, you are thinking. You may not even know it, but, but you're thinking right now because you are process, processing the words that I'm putting together in a sentence. You may not understand or agree with everything that I'm saying, but you are engaged right now in the world of the mind. You, you live in the world of the mind. So you were designed by God to live in a world of a matter. You were designed by God to live in the world of a mind. But but you were also designed by God to live in the world of the Spirit. Here's the thing about that. Everything that really matters in life dwells in the world of the Spirit. We have have very little trouble with the world of matter. You know, science has done an unbelievable job there of helping us to understand the world in which we live. We have very little difficulty in the world of the mind. At least most of us have very little difficulty in the world of the mind. But we struggle immensely in the world of the spirit. Many of us, if we're honest, we've done well in the world of matter and in the world of the mind but we struggle in the spiritual realm if in the world of matter you you have you you know you you have the spouse you've always wanted you, you have the house you were looking for you have all the things that you always wanted you're doing well not only there but you're doing well in the world of the mind you have happy thoughts you're in a good place mentally you are educated you are a thinker and yet even in spite of that, you feel, still feel it feels as if something has gone wrong in you. Are you, you tracking with me on that? Something still feels broken even when those things are right. Something is, still feels wrong. And the reason is you were created to dwell in three worlds, not just two. And the third world is difficult for us, if not impossible. In fact, I believe it is impossible without the help of, of God in our lives. In fact, that's why Jesus came, because at the crucifixion, The the huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two just to show us that in Jesus, in the cross of Christ, the door to the world of the spiritual has been opened to us. The door to the presence of God has been opened to us. You know, it's always been amazing to me that, that when that veil was torn in two, all the priests that could go into the holy place, all the Levites who could go in there, they saw that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom and they knew something had happened on that day. In fact, that's, I believe that's why if you read the book of Acts that many, many priests came to put their faith in Jesus because I think they saw something has changed. I don't have to wait for the high priest to go into the very presence of God anymore. The door has been opened for me. And then he's going to go back to the same argument that he had in chapter 7. So let's look at verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the, uh, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The, the promise of the law is that if you do this, I'll bless you. And if you don't, then I'll destroy you. That's the promise of the law. The promise of Christ is, I will come in and transform your heart so, you will, so this will no longer be an issue. So you'll no longer want those things and you'll never no longer pursue those things. Now, now understanding that, does anybody want to argue that Jesus' way is not as attractive or as beautiful as the old way? I don't think anybody would argue that at all. No, better covenant, better promises. Let's keep reading, verse 7. For, for if that first covenant had been faultless there would, be, would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is the same thing he was talking about in the last chapter when he said, hey, if the, if the law could save us, why would, there, why would we need a, a new way? If the old priest could save us, why would we need a new high priest? It's like what Paul said in Galatians when he said, if righteousness could be gained by the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's keep going. Verse 8, for he finds fault with who? them now that's going to be huge that's really important here because the because what he's trying to say here what he's going to show us is that the law was not the problem the law is not the problem let's keep reading for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, the, the old covenant was made through Moses when he, when he came down off the mountain carrying, carrying what? The Ten Commandments. Very good. And so God is saying here, what he's trying to say is, listen, the Ten Commandments were not the problem. He's trying to say the law that could not save us, the reason it couldn't save us is not because the law was imperfect, not because the law was flawed. The problem was not the law. The problem was our inability to keep the law. He's saying the law is perfect, but the problem was us. Now, now I'm going to throw something out here, and if, if you want to you take it, but I, but I think this is what he's trying to get across here. What if God didn't give us the law just simply so that we would obey it? What if he gave it to us to show us that we couldn't keep it? You know, I have, I have two girls who have always been pretty ind- independent and. And uh, I, I remember a day a long time ago, <laughs> I remember this, you know, you, you just, you know, your kids, they're very independent and they want to think for themselves and that's good, you know, but then they, sometimes they get really good. You know what I'm talking about? Like the one time when, when Julie called me and I was at the office in Georgetown, uh, uh, well, no, this was in Reno, I think. Anyway, no, it doesn't matter. But she called me one day and, uh, and she, this is how it started. She said, you need to talk with your daughter. You know how I many of you know whenever, whenever a conversation starts that way, you know it's not going to be it's like, okay, all right, something's going down here. And so anyway, she, she gives the phone to Aaron and Aaron gets on the phone and this is what she says to me. I mean, she, she got so good. She got so good. This is a little little just a little you know kindergartner, maybe first grade somewhere in there. And she speaks to me knowing that her daddy is a pastor, knowing that I love the Lord, knowing, that, that I'm trying to teach them to follow God, this is what she says. She says, Daddy, God said I shouldn't go to school today. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you do with that? It's like, uh, okay, well, I want you to learn to follow God, but I, I don't think he's telling you that. So anyway, a, a, anyway, well, uh, when my girls were toddlers, you know, I'm sure they like yours. They became fiercely independent. I mean, a two-year-old wants to do everything, right? You, you know those days. If you have a two-year-old in your family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But they're fiercely independent. Two, two-year-olds want to do stuff by themselves. They just, they just do. They, and one of the things a two-year-old wants to do a lot of times is they want to dress themselves. But, but the problem with that is uh uh, that grown-up people couldn't put together a lot of toddler clothes that that they make nowadays because they're shirts with zippers in the back and 97 tiny buttons but but that two-year-old standing there's like i got it you know they're like i do it you know that's how it is but and you're like no you can't get it because a 30-year-old can't get that without getting your hair stuck in the zipper and having the buttons misaligned but you try to help them and you try to help them and then they just pitch a fit anybody been there you know what i'm talking about some of you are like, that's my husband every day. No, I'm just I'm kidding. I hope that's not. But, so, so anyway, what I would do back in those days, I would just say, okay, oh, do it. Do it. I'll be in the living room. And anywhere from 30 seconds to 15 minutes later, I, there'd be a meltdown going on in the other room. Now, I'm sure that your kid is not that way. I'm sure your kid just walks up to you and very politely says, Father... Would you kindly assist me with my clothing? I'm sure that's what happens, you know, but that's not the way it is with normal kids. I'm telling you, most kids would be melting down in the other room, laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, I can't do it! Well, I've learned, and if you're a parent, I think you'll be with me. One of the most difficult parts of parenting there's, are there those moments when you have to let them learn by failing in pain. It's a hard thing. But there are times when you're just like, okay, you're not gonna listen to me. You're not gonna pay attention, okay. And you just have to let them learn through a little bit of suffering. So, so I would sit in the other room and until, until she would, whichever daughter it was, they would work with all their might they would fail, and then finally they would come and get help. But but here's another thing that would happen sometimes, and, and and this is so us. This is so us. Tell me if you don't see this. in you, but but they would come in and they would have buttons all of, out of alignment, and the zipper would be halfway up, or you know would be you know have uh, just stuck in, in a certain weird way, or the shirt wouldn't be all the way on and be barely hanging on. But then but what they do is they put this jacket on over the top of it, and then they come out, you know, like they're all dressed. And say, okay. <laughs> right? And you're like, and you look at them and you're like, why are you wearing a jacket? I want a jacket. Well, it's July. You don't need a jacket. And you and so you take it off, and then you find that the shirt's all messed up, but 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 she wants to do it by herself, and when she fails, she still pretends like she didn't and tries to hide the failure. does mm, Doesn't that sound like us? And then finally when she was either busted for in her pretending or she's at her wits end, then she would sit on my lap and I'd fix the buttons that were messed up and I'd zip the zipper up without hair in the zipper and make sure everything was good and I'd kiss her face and then we'd go play. The law was not given to be, merely be obeyed. It was given to reveal our weakness so that in our failure, we would find our hearts ready for the Savior. When my two-year-old realized she was weak and couldn't do it, that's when she was ready to receive my help. When we look at the law and we realize I can't do this, suddenly our hearts are open and we realize I need a Savior. I need your help, Jesus. I can't do this. I need you. And, you know, so many of us could tell horror stories of belonging to churches that just just sucked the life out of you and beat you up. And, and, and it was all based on doing this and doing that. And you just kept failing. And then you instead of getting help, you just pretended that you weren't failing. And then finally, finally, and you know, people like this, they, you just give up because you think that Jesus doesn't work for you. But in reality, you never really tried Jesus. You tried a religious moral code. And Jesus, in that moment, he looked at you and says, of of course you can't do it. Of course you can't. Are you tired enough yet? Can I help you? No, I have it. I do it. Okay, well, I'll be in here. When you get tired enough, I'll be right here. All right, let's finish up this text. The old way is gone. The new has come. So what's the new way then? What is the way of Jesus? There, There are four provisions In this text that belong to the new way to the new covenant so let's look at verse 10 i love these i think this is going to bless you for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days that that, that's referring to the day of the cross after jesus died on the cross and was resurrected this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts So the first thing he says, he will change our hearts. Here's the thing. And you need to understand the context. He's writing to Jewish people here. So they have a, a lifelong context of living under Jewish law here. And so in Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites that they were to put the law everywhere. You can read it. if you know. Trust me. I mean, I know Deuteronomy and Numbers and some of those are kind of hard to read. But read it and you'll see that they were told, God told them to put the law everywhere. Everywhere you were supposed to write the law on your hands. You were supposed to put it on your doorpost. You were supposed to put it on the, your gate of, uh, of your fence. You're, you're supposed to wear this. In fact, you're supposed to wear this wooden box on your forehead that had the laws in them. Now, the reason for for that was that no matter where you are, or where you're going, or what you were doing, you would always be reminded of what you should be doing. It's hard to forget what you should be doing if you actually wear it on your forehead, because no matter where you look, there's, there's your forehead, right? And you're seeing it. If, if you're working it with your hands, it's there. If you're walking through your house, it's there. If you're walking out of your gate, you're seeing it. You're always being reminded of what you should be doing And because, here's the problem, here, because of our weakness as human beings, you were not only being reminded of what you should be doing, but you're constantly being reminded of how badly you were failing. And Jesus says, here's a new way. Instead of writing it on your hands and on your forehead, I'm going to write it on your mind and put it in your heart so that the well that once spewed out what is sinful will now spew out what is right. I will change, change your heart so that your heart longs for my law. And, and this works itself in our lives like this. You know, if you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, you'll find that, that everybody here, you, you could probably say that, that there, there are things that maybe you struggled with very, very badly, say five years ago, But those things have now lessened in power, if not not fully disappeared in your life, as you've grown into the fullness of Christ, as you're being refined, as you're being sharpened. Now, now here's the thing. If you're sitting in here today and you say, Pastor, man, that's just just not my story. I'm still struggling really badly. I'm still hurting. I still still fail all the time. I still blow it all the time. Well, we have some really good news for you, but it's coming just a couple verses down. So, we'll get to that in a minute. The first part of the New Covenant is God's going to transform your heart. Look at the next part of the New Covenant, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Second thing is that we will belong to God. We will belong to God. You know, every human being, has this deep desire and longing to belong to something. Like, like if you've ever been around guys who who love sports teams, you, I, I catch this, I do, I say the same thing, I catch myself doing it all the time, but but they'll always say things like, you know, after a great victory, they'll say, we beat them, It's like, Oh, you play for the Razorbacks? I didn't. I didn't know that. When, when did they sign you to their roster? You know, it's like, well, uh, I don't. But but we beat them. We did it. You know, and and we all want to belong. We want to be part of it, and we want to be part of something. And that's what drives athletics. It's what it's what drives. In fact, frankly, it's what drives gangs. People want to belong. It's what drives fashion. And if you don't believe, if you don't think that the need to belong drives fashion, then you're not paying attention because, in essence, there are people out there saying, I will wear this because this makes me socially acceptable. Or my favorite one, especially in high school, you'll see it. I will wear this because it makes me socially unique, just like all my friends who are wearing the same clothes. (laughs) That always makes me laugh. You know, it's it's really easy to see in high school. You know, I I graduated, uh, uh, it was, I mean, right after, listen, it, the Dead Sea wasn't dead, it was just only sick, so that's how long ago it's been, but it was 19, 1981, and, uh, and, and there, there were, when I was in high school, and I think it's maybe different groups and different names, but it's still the same, but I, when I was there, there were the athletes, and then there was, the, like, the people in things like chess club, and then, you know, the, the, the nerds, uh, whatever you I don't know what they call them now uh, later they'll call him rich is what they'll call them. but uh, uh, you know and then there, there was like the the druggies in my school we had a huge drug problem in the school the funny thing was that each group dressed very differently from each other but they all dressed exactly like all the members of that group are you tracking me I want to belong Now you throw in the utter failure of men in this nation to build safe homes where children are loved and this problem is compounded by a billion. This is what creates the gangs. This is what the gang problem, we have a gang problem in this nation because we have a fatherless problem. Because they're looking for someplace to belong. They want a family. They want to be a part of something. They want to find a crew that is there. So, so we have this longing to belong to something. And, and God says to us, hey, you belong to me. You are mine. And I'm not ashamed of you. I'm proud that you, to call you my child. You are mine. You're mine. So the first part is the law will be written on our hearts and our minds rather than our foreheads and our hands. The second is that we will belong to God and we will be His people. And now let's look at the next part because the the next part is a little bit confusing when you you read it. But look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, that's an important phrase, and each one his brother, that's important, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So, So if you're reading this and you're thinking, wait a minute, does this mean, are we not supposed to tell? Do we tell people about the Lord? Are we we not supposed to do that? What's going on here? Yes, you do, but, but here's what he's saying. You don't have to tell people who have already been saved to know the Lord because they already do. They already do. And this attacks the system that would say, once you do this, do this, and do this, then you'll know Jesus. He says, from the least of them to the greatest. Not, well, once they've completed this level of discipleship training, then they'll know Jesus. He says, from the least to the greatest, they'll know you, they'll know me, they'll know Jesus. The one who can sit for hours and talk higher level theology and the one who got saved 15 minutes ago, they both know the Lord. You know, at an altar in a youth camp in southern Missouri, many, many years ago, when when Christ awakened my soul to himself, I had very little knowledge outside of of Bible stories. I knew those. And yet, even though that's all I knew and I couldn't quote a lot of Scripture and that sort of thing, in that instant, I knew Jesus. I I knew Him. I, I didn't have to do this and do this and do this and do that to know Him. I knew Him. Even though I couldn't quote much Scripture, even though I didn't even fully understand what Jesus had done in me, I knew the Lord. See, knowing the Lord is not, and being known by Him is not some future occurrence brought about by discipline. It's an awakening of the soul by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, now to maintain that relationship, you have to dive into it. You know, I mean, it takes you need to pay attention to it. It's like people say, "Well, I've, you've probably seen this meme out there, and it's so true." Uh, 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 Anthony Evans, I think, is, is the one who first said it. Tony Evans, he's. He said, uh, people say, well, I don't, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's true, but you don't have to go home to be married, but your relationship will suffer. Interesting thought, but you don't have to do to know. That's what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before uh, your eyes that Jesus Christ was public, publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, man, hey, who, be, who bewitched you fools? I, 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 I'd like to know one thing from you. He said, did you come to know the Lord by doing or by believing in faith? Now, now here, here's the good part. Here's the part that you, if you're thinking especially, if you're thinking this new covenant sounds great, but I I just don't know if I'm walking in it. I still struggle so much. I still fall so often. I get so frustrated. This is the great, great part. Verse 12, the last part of of this new covenant. Verse 12 For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. He will be merciful toward our our failures. Let's let's talk about this big word, sanctification, because we we have this moment where the truth and the light and the beauty of Christ comes alive inside of our hearts, but we still often stumble and, and, and fall and struggle after that. Isn't that true? Anybody here? It's been your experience that you've, you've fallen, uh, you've struggled sometimes in your life after you came to know Jesus. Let me take an informal poll. Let me see your hand if that's true. Okay, good. All right. The rest of the ones, that anybody didn't raise your hand, I wanted to know your secret. That's what I want to know. But here's the good news. The good news of this new covenant is, the, is that God rejoices over in the steps instead of brooding over the falls. Let me explain it like this. I've used this illustration before, but I make no apologies for using it again today because it is the best word picture that I have ever come across to help us understand this. You know, when my daughters were, were little, when they first walked, Honestly, and maybe you've seen this, I don't think it was really their intention to walk the first time they walked because I think it was just that they had this gigantic head and they got out of balance. They let go of the table and the head was going and they had like take a step to save their life. And I think that's I think that was more what it was like. I don't know if that they actually intended to, but, but, it, but when they started leaning forward, it created what in physics is known as momentum. And so they took that first step and then that next step and then that next step and then she fell. Then she fell. And then, what, what do we do? We celebrated with an epic celebration of all things good. I mean, it's like we're making cupcakes and we're having a party and we're shouting and cheering. We are partying cra- like crazy. Why? Because she's walking. I mean, my kid is walking. And then, here's the thing, for the next several weeks... She can only take six, seven, eight, maybe 10 steps before she falls over. And every single time she does that, we giggle and we laugh and we celebrate. And not only that, whenever someone new comes to show up at the house, then we have, it turns into show and tell. And, 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 and when somebody new shows up, we're like, hey, hey, watch this. And we put them down and, like, and you're waiting for them and they start to go forward. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 you know, and that's the way it goes. And, and so we celebrate the fact that she's walking even though I'm not convinced that she even intended to walk. But here's the thing. I never, never, ever did I even think about the falls. Never gave it a second thought. I just loved that she was walking. I mean, never, ever did I go, man, when's this kid going to learn? I mean, it's been three weeks. I can do it. Her mom can do it. Shoot, for a, for a milk dud, the dog can get on his hind legs and walk around the kitchen. Come on, what's wrong with this child? No, no. You, you celebrate the steps. You celebrate the steps. And when they fell, now look at me, as, as often as they fell, which was a lot, never were we ever frustrated by the falls. And then, as my grew, girls grew stronger, and then they began to run, and that's when it gets really dangerous, really scary as a parent, because you realize they are faster than me. I'm. I'm four times their size, but they are faster than me. And you know you realize you're in trouble. But they would they would begin to run. But but sometimes when they're first learning to do that, the shoes would sort of get in the way and, and then they would wipe out and sometimes because of that because now they're running the falls were bad. In fact sometimes the the falls if, if you you can relate with this, the falls sometimes brought blood and tears. But I still never found myself frustrated by the falls. I never picked her up and said, look at the blood on that knee. What is wrong with you? Why can't can't you just stop falling? When they foul, fell, no, I didn't. That's not what happened. Instead, I found myself kissing boo boos and putting band aids on bloody knees and holding and kissing and 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 comforting them until all the tears were gone and she finally felt safe to run again. And then I'd put them down, and they would run. Listen, that's how it is with our Father. He rejoices in the steps and he heals the falls. That's how it is with our Father who loves to see us run and he doesn't ever tire of picking us up when we've fallen. See, see that's the good news for the man or the woman who's running towards him. The failures do not bring anger, they bring mercy. Now, I'm not talking about the person who's intentionally doing things wrong and saying, Oh, I'll get forgiven later. I'm talking about the person who's running toward him and they stumble and then they fall, they miss the mark. In that moment, you understand he's not angry, he wants to show mercy. He wants to heal you. He wants to get you back up on your feet. He wants to hold you as long as he needs to hold you to get the tears to stop flowing. And he wants to tend to the bloody knees, but then he wants to put you back down and say, okay, now run again, run again. While most of us beat ourselves up over over the fall, I believe what Jesus is doing is saying, what fall, what fall? I just saw you running. He rejoices over that verse 13 we'll, we'll close it out and speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete is grow and growing old is ready to vanish away it's ready to vanish away listen oh that that uh, that our life-sucking love of the law would just disappear would vanish why, why, why do we love her so much? I mean, it's been, it's a horrifically unhealthy relationship. Why do we love the law? She's brought us nothing but grief. It's like that, that psycho girlfriend or boyfriend that every one of us has had at one point in time, you know what I'm talking about? Why, why do we love her? Why do we keep going back to her? She doesn't satisfy us. Why do we love the law? Well, here, here's why. I think I think part of it is, is pride in many of us because some of us have our identities wrapped up so much in being the good church person. and You've had your identity wrapped up in that since day one and, and since you've mastered either obeying it or, or pretending to obey it, you have elevated yourself up past everybody else and, and so it's hard for you to let go of it because that's where you find that somehow you feel that you're better than, than other people. And you just think, well, if everybody could just live like me, then they'd be all right. Because, and it, and what happens is, it becomes this us versus them mentality. So some of us won't walk away from what's obsolete and broken because it gives us our identity. Some of us don't want to walk away from it because, in some ways, it's just easier to believe. Hey, if I follow these rules, I'll be okay. I remember sitting and talking with a lady one time when we were in Reno, Nevada. Her husband had just gotten saved. She didn't believe in God, and she came in and she was talking about all these things. And just and uh, and we sat and explained the gospel to her and explained grace to her. And at the end of the conversation, she said, "That's just too easy," and she walked away because it made more sense to her that she'd have to work for it. Maybe that's why some of us don't. But some of us love the law because that's all we know and we're afraid maybe this grace thing is just too good to be true. You know, I've always found Psalm 19 to be interesting. In Psalm 19, David says that the wickedness of his heart is hidden to him, that it's baffling to him. I think I can relate with that and probably you can too. He doesn't know why he's behaving the way he does. He doesn't know why he gets into the things he gets into. He doesn't know why he's drawn towards the things to, toward which he's drawn. Paul even said something very similar to that in, in Romans. But, but, and maybe you find yourself in the same place. Maybe you're misfiring and, and you just don't know why you do what you do and you don't know uh, where to go. you don't know what to do, but And every week you come in here and you hear me say these things and you you can feel it stirring in you, but you don't know what to do when you leave. I want want you to hear this very clearly today. This is something so important, foundational for what I believe we must be as a church. And it is this. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay. See, if this is not a place where it's okay to, be okay, to, to not be okay, I think I said that right. If this is not that kind of a place, then you have to wear a mask. You have to come in and pretend. But if we understand that this is a place where it's okay to not be okay, then we can come in and we can be honest. We can come in and be, we can be real. Here's the thing, though. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay. But here's all I ask of you. Don't walk around pretending that your shirt shirt is buttoned right when it's not. If your shirt's not buttoned up right, don't, don't put a jacket on and sweat to death and try to pretend that everything's okay. Just say, somebody, please help me with my shirt. Please help. And maybe you're dealing with anger or lust or loneliness or Bitterness, despair, frustration, or a tendency to know the law, but not know how to walk in grace. I don't know where you are today, but I want to invite you today to join us in a connect group. Today, there's some meeting today. Today is our launch day. There's one meeting right after church at Chuck Bryant's house. There's going to be a great crew there and and they're going to dig in together. There's one that's going to be meeting tonight at, 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 at my house. If you need directions to these places, we'd love to give you and help you get there. Uh, Willie, Miss Willie leads another one, but their are scheduled a little, a little different than the rest of them. Uh, so you just need to check with her when their their ne- next meeting is. But, but here's the point. Our, our connect groups are places where we're really trying to take our masks off and we're really trying to find healing for our souls because we're going deeper together. We get to know each other more more intimately so that we earn trust in those relationships so that we can be honest about where we are. And we do that to find joy in living this rich, full life that Jesus promised, to find freedom from the dark places in our lives. And listen, I want you to understand. I'm not saying that you come in and we're like, all right, tell us the deepest secrets of your soul. That's not what we're talking about. That doesn't happen. You know, you do it when when you're ready, when you feel that you you've earned trust in that situation, when the moment arises and the spirit's moving in that group meeting. That's when you're able to say, hey, I, I need something. To, I'm going to ask you to pray with me about, and 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 that's when you do it. But it's, it's so it's I don't, I don't want to paint a picture like it's this weird thing because we have a lot of fun, and in fact. We eat together, that's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's a great time together, but it's, it's a place where we are growing, where we are changing. Maybe not as fast as we want to be changing or we'd like to be changing, but we are changing. And if you're here sitting and you say, saying, I, I, I just don't know, here's what I can promise you. I, I know where, I know this, I know where a lot of people in this church came from. And I'm absolutely convinced that you're not going to have a story that makes anybody gasp. You're not going to have a story that somebody's going to say, well, I never. That's not going to happen because you're more likely to hear their story and say, you've got to be kidding me. I'm telling you, there are people here that have those stories. But those stories are wonderful because this is a story of the grace of God. So maybe you'll find a place You can find a connect group, get plugged in where for the first time in your life, you can finally just be honest about exactly where you are. And I'm here to tell you, that is a huge release, a huge relief too. He said, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will transform their hearts and from the least to the the greatest, they will know me. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities and their sins. Would you bow your head together with me, Father? As we come into your presence today, I, I, I don't even really know everything that I need to, to pray, Lord God. I just, I, I just thank you, Lord, for these men and women. I thank you, Lord, for the chance to talk about your grace. And I pray, God, that you might just simmer some of these things down into our souls, that, that, that I pray that, Lord, that you really help us to really hear today in the deep part of our, the most innermost part of our beings. Lord, I pray especially today for my brothers and sisters in here who have found life to be weighty and, and overwhelming and, and that they've carried this great burden of, of, of guilt because... They know that you you set people free and that you heal and you restore and and that you reconcile. And they've heard these testimonies of these things, but they feel very few of those things happening in their lives. And if any have happened at all, I just pray, God, that that they would just sit and, and, and instead of feeling guilty and overwhelmed, that they would just look to you. And God, some of them may have may come to think that you just don't work for them because they've heard these stories and it just hasn't helped them for that happened for them i pray for them jesus i pray for i pray for my real followers in here today who are doing all that they can to do what's right and still find their souls so empty and a relationship with you so frustrating while you walked here on earth the religious had had such a difficult time coming to you but the broken and the frustrated and the lonely and the sick they, they found it so easy to come to you so I, I pray god for ease in coming to you and i know that god some in this room just can't imagine walking into a room full of people with their with their junk and i just pray god that they would buy in to the better hope today i, I pray god that they would be tired enough to deal with their junk because Th- those who are finally weary of trying to get someplace only to, to find themselves dog paddling in quicksand, they're the ones who will move. Those, those are the ones who are ready, God. And God, I just pray for my friends who are just misfiring. I just pray that they'd be led to a place where they can find healing. I pray that you would, that you would heal and restore all of the broken places in their lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to rest knowing that you will be merciful toward our iniquities. God, I thank you that even though we fail, you still rejoice over the steps that we've taken. You stop and you say, yes, yes, you fell, but look how far you came. Look how many steps you took. And instead of giving up, God, that we would just sit on your lap and let you heal so that you can put us down and say, okay, now run again. Let's run again. Let's go again with heads bowed and eyes closed and there's nobody looking around. I I don't know where anybody is because I can't look on the heart. I can't see what's going on inside your life. Only God can. But I just want to know if there's anybody here who'd say, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me because I just, I just want something better. I want something more. Maybe you just feel like there's something missing. Maybe you've been walking around carrying this load of guilt and shame and all the while the Lord has been saying, trying to say to you, hey, I, just look to me. I, you, you, yes, you fell, but I'm right here. I haven't, I haven't given up on you and you just need to look to him today. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Yes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Maybe you're online. Maybe there's something else I said, but the Lord is dealing with you. You say, Pastor, just pray for me today. I don't don't even need to know what it is about. You say, just pray for me. Yes. Anybody else? Father, you saw every hand that was raised. And you know where we are even better than we know where we are. I just pray, Jesus, that today that you would help us, God. And we're not asking, Lord. I'm not asking for you necessarily just to do some miraculous thing. That'd be wonderful, Lord. And if you, can't, if you want to do that, we would rejoice in that. But God, help us to make some choices today that we would get plugged into a group, we would, whether it's a connect group or an overcomers group or a Sunday school class, or, or even if it's just me and a couple of my friends who are pursuing Jesus, meeting and having coffee in the morning before work, whatever it is, God, that we would get that place where where we, we would be able to go deeper together and find the help that we need. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to you and Lord, that we'd let go of the guilt, that we would embrace the grace, that we would find your mercy and God, that we wouldn't use that, that grace and mercy as an excuse to say, well, that just, that means I can sin some more because that's just not what your Bible, what your word says but God, that we would use that as a springboard to chase harder after you. And Lord, I pray that as we prepare to leave this place, that you would help us to walk in your grace and your mercy, that you would help us to hear your voice, that help us to draw close to you. Lord, help us to walk in that new covenant that you provided for us at the cross. And we give you thanks. in In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.